Good morning. Today we're going to talk about the Apostles' Creed, which says of Jesus Christ, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Pardon me. It also says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. The church has confessed that for 2,000 years. I'd like for us to put that confession in context by first talking briefly about tradition, culture, and evidence. First, culture. In order to, I should say at the risk of being facetious, in order to make a strong statement about tradition, I say with great sincerity, Chicago is not the only city where the dead can vote. The church and classic liberal education have always given the past a strong voice in present circumstances. That's a pretty good definition of tradition. We don't live in the past. We live on the past. Now, you can see what I mean when you listen to Pastor Nate preaching. He always explains some part of Scripture. And then he tells a contemporary story to give that Scripture meaning in our experience. He cycles back and forth between Scripture and the present world. And this alternating feature of good preaching is important. If we forget the past, we forget what God did for our salvation. If we ignore the present, then we miss the meaning of our salvation for our present circumstances. And I wonder if you've also noticed something else about Pastor Nate. If biblical doctrine somehow is is somehow made secondary, he has a problem with that. Pastor Nate always always gives priority to Scripture interpreting the present more than he gives the present authority to interpret Scripture. And if biblical doctrine and morality conflict with present-day beliefs and practices, he stands on the side of Scripture. He is handing down the tradition. Pastors and teachers rooted in Scripture hand down the, to succeeding generations, beliefs, memories, and stories that give the church her identity. And central to what they hand down is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 4. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ was raised from the dead 
on the third day according to the scripture. Now, I want to show you something amazing. The Christian tradition has been handed down intact generation after generation across vastly different cultures and through historical catastrophes for 2,000 years. Now think about that. The Christian tradition has been handed down intact generation after generation across vastly different cultures and through historical catastrophes for 2,000 years. At midnight on January 1, 2000, we began the celebration of a new millennium. Among the first television images at midnight, 10,000 citizens of the Polynesian island kingdom of Tonga sang the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, and if your heart is not caked with caustic skepticism, those islanders serve as the poster child for maybe the most unexpected reality in the, in the third millennium after Christ, the global church. The, it's astonishing. Christ is building a church globally. And that global church today is a church that has renounced violence, that glorifies God in its worship, and declares the resurrection of, the, of Christ from the dead across the whole wide world. After the horrors of the 20th century and facing the uncertainties of the 21st, the global church is a welcome statement that God is making preparations on a grand scale to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The energy of God courses through all of those congregations. It's the energy of an athlete stepping into the arena to compete. It's the joy of a bride processing to her groom at the altar. What is this energy? Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17, speaking of the resurrected Christ, says, It is the power of an indestructible life. The global church is a powerful material witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're going to talk about witness and evidence just a little bit later. Not everyone believes in the resurrection of Christ. And their unbelief raises unwelcome questions that challenge the validity of the Christian faith, and they cause a lot of tensions. However, those tensions 
are necessary because they alert the church to dangers that contradict her calling and the tradition that she bears. And for just a couple of minutes, I'd like to talk with you all about two characteristics of American culture that challenge the church. The first is a conception of science in which science is regarded as the only true form of knowledge. Now, you can believe anything you want, but scientific knowledge overrides all other claims to truth and generally considers them as mere opinions. And you can see why. I suspect that everybody in this room has heard the sentiment and maybe the exact words, hey, well, look, that that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Scientists never say that to each other about their work. The glory of science is knowledge that can be verified independently by other scientists. And that knowledge and the technology that puts it to use, particularly in relieving human suffering, makes it really difficult to challenge the idea that science is the only possessor of truth and can solve all our problems. Now, actually, actually, very few people really believe that. At least we don't live like we believe it. When we decide whom to marry, when we try to decide what to do about immigration or what house to buy or whether to convict a person of first-degree murder, the truth can be very elusive. But we make those decisions all the time based on what we believe to be the truth and common sense says that we are right to do that. Now, given that background about science, I want to read to you a quotation that will give you a sense of how this distorted understanding of scientific knowledge found a home in the church. Rudolf Bultmann was a world-class New Testament scholar in the first half of the 20th century. And in his book, Christianity and Myth, he made the following statement. He said, we cannot use electric lights and radio, and you can substitute devices and space shots, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medicine and clinical procedures, and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and wonders, miracles. That unnecessary deference to scientific knowledge corrupted the theological curriculum of the majority 
of Protestant mainline seminaries in the 20th century. So it's a scientist and people like Professor Bultmann need to acknowledge publicly that science doesn't tell the whole truth. They also need to acknowledge that for all the good it does, science has also put into our hands the means of destroying the human family in one afternoon. You and I, on non-scientific grounds, can challenge the arrogance of scientists, but we cannot challenge their methodology or their discoveries. That's one characteristic. You and I live with this every day. The second characteristic of American culture that challenges the church is this. Aversion to tradition has never been so strong and widespread and reverence for eternal values has never been mocked so strongly, even to the highest degree of desecration. And some of the people who mock and desecrate eternal values think that what the church does, what we're doing in this body of Christians here, is reactionary at best and repressive and dangerous at worst. So you and I live in that kind of world and we're going to have to figure out exactly how to do that. So one of the other things we ought to realize in the face of this desecration of values is that there are millions of people that disagree with that. We have a room full of them right here. But thanks to institutions like Google, Goldman Sachs, Harvard University, and the New York Times, this desecration of eternal values holds a commanding place in the American public square. I like to think of the situation that you and I find ourselves in today in our culture as soft totalitarianism. Now, for our part, we need to be calm. We need to be vigilant and with gentleness toward those who disagree with and may even look down on us. We examine today some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which fortifies the church to live in this culture. And in this culture, not only to live in it, but to provide an alternative culture, what the New Testament calls the new creation in Christ the new man created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. That is an astonishing calling.
Now, we're going to talk about evidence. Evidence that gives reason to continue believing in the resurrection of Christ strengthens our faith. But it's really important to remember evidence is not proof. Let me give you an example, and I apologize for first-person singular, but it's real and it's pertinent. When I was 29 years old, I did not expect to have nightmares about my death, but I had them for a short period of time, night after night. And every time I had them, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was terrified and my pajamas were soaked. And the last time this ever happened, I got out of bed in the wee hours of the morning, went around into the bathroom adjacent to our bedroom, closed the door, and the most remarkable internal conversation took place. And at the center of that conversation was the question, do I believe in life after death? And in that conversation, the Apostles' Creed came to my mind. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. I learned that before I could read. And I said the words all my life. Did I believe them? Alone in the dark and the quiet. No angel visitations. No vision from heaven to prove the faith. I made a decision. I confessed. I do believe it. And I walked back into the bedroom, got in bed, and I went to sleep. And thereafter, at bedtime or on any other occasion of dread, I found myself saying, okay, death, If you're coming for me, come on. You can have me. And when you've done your worst, I will rise from the dead and be with Christ forever. And for the record, for the record, the nightmares never came back. The resurrection of the dead is a matter of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is is the evidence, not the proof of unseen things. We either believe them or we don't. When we confess them, we believe them to be true. We do not prove them. Nobody can prove and nobody can disprove the claims of the Christian faith. And a course like you and I are doing here, on apologetics this summer, can only offer evidence for the Christian faith in a number of its particulars. So keep that distinction in mind. Okay, we've, we've kind of, this is a context. I said earlier that when Christian doctrine and morality conflict with the beliefs and practices of our contemporary culture. Pastor Nate always 
comes down on the side of Scripture. Why does Scripture have that kind of authority over his preaching? Scripture, and Scripture alone, has preserved eyewitness testimonies and apostolic interpretations of what God did to save the human family from utter ruin. The biblical writer Luke is very particular about eyewitnesses. So we're going to start now looking at some of the New Testament evidence. And once again, I've asked some of you to read to give you relief from my voice. And this will kind of set a stage for us to examine some of the, some of the efforts. Creighton agreed that he would read the first passage, which is Luke. Did, he did not leave. Oh, good. Man, gosh. I couldn't see you for a minute. Creighton Anderson is going to join me here, uh, and he's going to read chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4 of Luke, and I hope you'll join us there. Give us a moment to find our places, Creighton, if you would, and either on, in your hand or in your, on your device. I hope you'll follow along. I said to everybody that's reading, Brandywine seems to be alternating between the NIV and the ESV, so those versions are pretty close, uh, and you're going to read from one of them. So, <laughs> and thank you. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Thank you, Creighton. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not the only ones to turn their hand to writing an account of Jesus' life and experiences. Many people tried that. Now, as Creighton read and as I read this text earlier, I came across what I thought were, were two criteria for writing uh, an account that would guarantee the certainty of what you have been taught. I wonder if you saw the same things. What, what criteria does Luke ask for in writing a gospel. Eyewitnesses are huge. There's one other one that's not quite as obvious and which we're not going to talk about because we don't have a whole lot of evidence of how he did it, but there's something about Luke here. Yeah, I I carefully investigated. Now, you know Dr. Luke was probably a pretty careful man. Doctors tend to be careful. And so we wish he would have told us what he did to be careful and how he investigated, but he didn't do that. So we're going to focus on the eyewitness part of this. He said the information needed to be handed down to us 
by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. The early church did not want to base the gospels on hearsay or secondhand evidence. They really wanted to know of people, were you there from the very beginning and did you see it with your own eyes? If you did, then we want to listen to you. But there's also some, there's another characteristic of eyewitnesses. Did you all notice that? They needed to be something besides eyewitnesses. Say that again. (laughs) Servants of the word, of course. Now we're not quite sure what that means, but there's a text in Luke chapter 10 that just gives you an idea of who some of those other servants of the word may have been. Luke said that after this, the Lord, Jesus Christ, appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. There were many people like that. There were a lot of hangers-on and a lot of people who got closer to Christ close enough to be sent out with responsibilities. They would qualify as servants of the word. There's one more example of the priority of eyewitnesses in the life of the early church. And Tina Taylor agreed to to read this text from Acts chapter 1, verses 21 And 22. Now, the background of what Tina is going to read here is that Jesus has ascended into heaven, and 120 of his followers who believe and have seen he is risen from the dead gather in an upper room and they want to make a decision who is going to replace Judas as one of the uh, inner circle of 12 disciples. Peter's the spokesman, and this is what he said. Tina, thank you. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Hold it. Holy cow. Is that the wrong one? That is a great verse. (laughs) It is the wrong verse. Oh, no. I don't know, but let me read it. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm sorry. I don't know how that happened. It's been that kind of morning. Thank you, Tina. It's not your fault. Acts 1, 20 and 21. Peter said, It is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, according to Peter, what's the criterion for Judas's replacement? Had to be an eyewitness and be more specific. What did he have to witness? Everything from from the baptism of John until... The sin into heaven. Again, they're looking for people who were there from the beginning, saw it with their own eyes. 
these people were were very, very definite about who could be a legitimate witness to the resurrection. Now, you need to know something, and I'm sure you already know it. Not all eyewitness testimony is reliable. And if any of you is a trial attorney, I'm sure you could wax eloquent a long time on how to assess eyewitness testimony. I, I did some research myself and wanted to share with you one positive aspect of eyewitness testimony and one negative aspect. Here's the, here's the positive. This attorney said that when testimony is obtained and reported right after the event took place, the witness's memory is still fresh, which means that there is a higher chance that his account of the incident is still vivid in his mind. And this makes his witness, his testimony, more reliable. Now, if you take that criterion and you look at the New Testament record, the people who are represented there as witnesses of the resurrection satisfy that criterion pretty well. You could have spoken to some of them early on the Sunday morning after the Friday afternoon when Jesus died. That's pretty strong eyewitness testimony. Now, you need to know there's a downside to eyewitnesses. Here's one example. Negative thoughts and emotions, as well as external threats, can cause the eyewitness to hide some facts or make a false testimony. For, for example, a person under oath in a court of law might perjure himself because he was afraid of what would happen to him or to his family if he told the truth about what he actually saw. We've also seen, and this is a very sad thing, POWs confess their war crimes after they have been tortured by the enemy and they renounce their country. We know how they got that testimony out of the POWs and we ignore it. In spite of the downside, courts of law treasure eyewitness testimony. And there's an unexpected benefit here. If, if a person might perjure himself because of fear, what if a person stuck to his story in spite of fear and in spite of suffering? Now for this, Tim Santa Barbara is going to read a text for us about the Apostle Paul that is one of those times when Paul just let it all hang out. And it's one of the most remarkable statements of what some of the early Christians suffered for their faith. Tim, thank you, would you? Absolutely. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, 
in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Wow. Thank you. You know, that didn't have to happen. Paul could have stopped that. All he had to do was say, I'm wrong. The, the resurrection of Christ didn't happen. I'm, I made a mistake. But he didn't do that. He endured that. And he endured a whole lot more. And his very willingness and the willingness of the other apostles and many other Christians to suffer without renouncing the resurrection is one of those material witnesses to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. You know, if, if the disciples stole Jesus' body and buried it somewhere, all they had to do was to say, it didn't happen, we can show you the body. Or if they knew somebody else that did it, all they had to do was to say, let me introduce you to so-and-so. He'll take you to the evidence that Christ died and never rose from the dead. They didn't do that. Except for the apostle John, all the apostles died a violent death. And they did not renounce the faith. That is astonishing. They are compelling evidence for the resurrection of Christ because they did not consider their lives so dear as to avoid being put to death. Now, the next eyewitness account of the resurrection of Christ speaks, I think, tenderly to our skeptical scientific age. It is the testimony of Thomas Didymus, Thomas the twin, affectionately called Doubting Thomas. And Shannon Keeler is going to read for us today. And just a word of thanks, Shannon, to you for reading today. Kaylee Johnson was going to read, and she called. I, I don't know when she actually emailed me. And she said, she's sick today. So, she, so partners in ministry that they are, she called Shannon. Shannon agreed to read, and we really appreciate it. This is in John chapter 20. We're going to read three sections of this text with just a little commentary in between the sections, but starting at verse 24, going through verse 29. So, Shannon, thank you. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, now think about that for just a minute. Thomas and those other guys had been through thick and thin together. And in spite of the fact that his brothers in ministry had seen Christ as a group, Thomas was having none of it. He said, look, whatever you think you saw, I'm not going to believe it until I see it and I touch it for myself. I won't do it. So the story continues. Whatever, by the way, whatever Thomas's motives might have been, he spoke for every skeptic who has ever lived, maybe including a lot of us here. But nobody ever received the answer 
to his skepticism, quite like Thomas did. Shannon. 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Are you, are you as glad as I am that Thomas gave voice to his doubt? <laughs> are, are you also glad that Jesus didn't deny his brash request? Pretty astounding. And aren't you glad John included the story in his gospel? No, none of the other writers do that. And you're going to be really glad for what Shannon reads next in verse 29. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Wow, thank you. What a great text. By the way, this eyewitness account here in John 20 and others like it make a very important point. The disciples did not see a ghost. You could touch him, he could eat, and he went about in broad daylight, very un-ghost-like. Okay, now we've got to talk about some missing evidence, which is also positive evidence. This next eyewitness evidence is from the Gospel of Matthew, and it raises a question that is very hard to to answer and the lack of the lack of an answer actually points to verification of the resurrection of Christ so look with me if you would in Matthew chapter 27 and verses 62 through 66 and while you're looking at that Tom Chaco Tom would you join me here it's going to be important for you to hear two passages of scripture back to back, so that you can feel the tension between them, and I'll try to draw it out. I'll read Matthew chapter 27 first, and then Tom is going to read uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. I wonder if if they learned that from Judas. We don't know that. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will come, steal the body, tell the people he's been raised from the dead, and this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now with that in mind, listen to Acts chapter 2, 22 to 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, 
was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It's just, thank you, Tom, it's just what the Pharisees feared, right? But it's not a problem, right? All they have to do is go down to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and produce the body, and it puts a stop to all this nonsense of Peter standing up, by the way, in center city Jerusalem and calling attention to the resurrection and blaming the authorities for his death. Just do it. It doesn't happen. I wonder why it doesn't happen. Maybe they couldn't find the body. Maybe there was no body to be found. And that failure of the posting of the guard and the lack of material evidence once again points to the idea that Christ rose from the dead to an indestructible life. Now, our next eyewitness comes from the Gospel of Mark. Phoebe, tell me you're here, Phoebe. Thank you. Phoebe, Bosma is going to read, it's a little bit of a longer passage, but it's, it's one of the strangest passages in all of the New Testament. It's in Mark chapter 16, verses, what did I give you, 2 through 8? 2 through 8, before you read, you need to understand something, that the oldest known manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark stop the story at verse 8. Verses 9 through 16 were added later. And when Phoebe finishes reading, you're going to say, keep going. But she can't. There is no more. So listen to the story and let's see what it tells us. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you, trembling And bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Isn't that the strangest ending? By the way, what do we know about verse 8 that Mark doesn't tell us? It's just, it's obvious. I'm not, it's not a trick question, I promise. Pardon? They did tell. tell. Otherwise, how does Mark know? So they were scared to death. They didn't, they didn't do what the, the young man in white told them to do right away, but later, obviously, they did. 
But I want you to think about two things from that story that Phoebe just read for us. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. I want you to think about that for a minute. Let's suppose that Christ did not die on the cross. But in the tomb, he revived. Now, I want to, can, can you picture what he had lived through in the not quite 24 hours of Thursday night and Good Friday? Can you remember what the soldiers did to him? Can you, can you imagine what it does to the physical organism to hang held only by nails and little posts for six hours in a Judean springtime? And then taken down, and how, how would somebody in that physical condition even think about moving the stone? And let's assume that somehow the stone got removed. Can you imagine his getting past the guards? And let's suppose the guards ran away. Can you imagine somebody in that physical condition making the 60 or 70 mile trek from Jerusalem to Galilee? On foot. The feeling here is that Mark's presentation and the young man's statement, he's going before you to Galilee, presume a hale and hearty Jesus. Hale and hearty because he rose again from the dead. Powerful, powerful testimony. There's another testimony here just in the way the story is told. If I were going to make up a story to try to persuade people that Christ rose from the dead, I don't know that I would put in it a story about a group of people so scared out of their wits that they couldn't talk. I would want to, can't you get a little excited? I mean, and do I, would I end my story right there? Even the end of that story is, is evidence that the person writing the story is not trying, he's not trying to do anything unusual. He's not trying to impress. He's trying to tell the truth. This is what happened. Now, I need to do something here. There's another passage of scripture. I will give it to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 4 through 7. And we're not going to read it and we're not going to talk about it. Paul says there were 500 people at one time who saw Christ alive. What I want to do is move on and tie some of this together. The first thing to do to tie all this together is I want to pose the question that all of this raises to us who believe. And the question is, so what? Christ is alive forevermore. What does that mean? What are we supposed to do with that? The answer was not obvious to the initial eyewitnesses. Listen to this question they asked Jesus. 
right at the beginning of ministry, right the day, in fact, the day that he rose again from the dead in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 6. These are the 11 apostles, and they come to him and they say, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? You know, Luke is so understated. These guys are itching to move. They're saying, you're back. The power that raises the dead should take care of the Romans. We're ready to do something. What are we going to do? Let's do it. And Jesus responded to them bluntly in chapter 1 and verse 7. He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And then he said to them, the answer for all time to the question, so what? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we know that Philip, not one of the twelve, made his way down to Ethiopia. Paul had plans to go to Spain. Thomas made his way as far east as India. And we, we who have not seen and yet believe, are still in the business of trying to reach every last people group on the face of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our task. That's what the resurrection is all about. I'd like to make two observations about Brandywine Valley in the light of this mission. I said earlier that the global church is a material witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brandywine Valley Baptist Church is a part of this global phenomenon. And the Lord of the church charges us to hand on the tradition to those who come after us. And I just wanted to tell you, Brandywine Valley Baptist Church is doing that. I saw it last week when I picked up my granddaughters from Vacation Bible School. And I saw up to 371 children and the young faces of moms and dads and the old faces of grandmothers and grandfathers picking up those grandchildren. And I see it in the re-engage ministry that Brandywine intends to begin later this year, reaching out to build and strengthen something that is at risk in our nation, and that is families that endure and do it well. I see it in small groups and ministry trips that's carried on with teenage kids in this body. I see it in the way that their efforts made to reach 20 and 30-somethings. I see it every Sunday in hundreds of people that faithfully worship here. We are handing down the tradition to those who come after us. And finally, the calling of the church is not just to live Maybe you even want to say not just to survive in hostile cultures. It is to provide an alternative culture 
to what's around us, what the New Testament calls the new creation in Christ, the new man created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. The greatest apologetic for the Christian faith is for the church to be imitators of God and to live a life of love. That's our calling. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Before we stop here, I know that this has been a, a nonstop talk. So if there's something you want to say or ask, we've got time to do it, and I would appreciate it. Yes, Bob. Thank you. Pastor Nate recommended a book, and the title is Cold Case Christianity. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Question is, do Christian scholars, all Christians believe Jesus really was crucified, dead, and buried? Muslims do not believe he actually died. Is that your question? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I were good. Patrick? The means were the means were not part of the dream and I don't remember about the other. <laughs> yes. When you gave your first sermon at the age of seventeen, do you remember when we were <laughs> I remember where it was, but I don't remember what I said. And I didn't write it. My mother wrote it. <laughs> my my mom was a Bible teacher and she had a file. And these guys said, why don't you come speak at this old people's home? So I said, okay. And I didn't know what to say, so I went to my mom's files, pulled it out, spoke, and they said, that was great. (laughs) (laughs) Apologetics. Apologetics is simply a formal, I've got a definition for that that I wrote at the top here. We will define Christian apologetics as study of evidence for the truth of the Christian faith. Questions about our faith arise, like the one 
about do, do Muslims say, did Jesus really die on the cross? Muslims maybe say he didn't. Christians say he did. So when you have a question, the formal name for looking for answers is apologetics. It doesn't mean saying, I'm sorry, I wish I didn't have to. It, it, I know it's the same word, but it's more like defense or thoughtful presentation. Thank you. Yes? I was. I was. I, in fact, I'm, I don't, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I was a pastor. And I, I, w- I was just stunned by them. But yes, I believed, and I think God used that thing to strengthen and deepen my faith, which I'm very grateful for. Thanks for asking. Enough or more, or shall we call it a day? Why don't we pray together, could we? Almighty God, you are the fountain of all wisdom. You know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weaknesses and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you.